0: Welcome to Cleary Got Antitrust Review, a podcast focused on antitrust enforcement, policy, and practice. In an increasingly complex and noisy world, we strive to provide insight, clarity, wisdom, and light. My name is Nick Levy, and I'll be your host today. Our topic today is US antitrust enforcement, and we have two veterans of that world, Bruce Hoffman and Dave Gelfand. Dave served from 2013 to 2016, as Deputy Assistant Attorney General for antitrust litigation in the Antitrust Division of the U.S. Department of Justice, while Bruce Hoffman was Director of the Federal Trade Commission's Bureau of Competition from August 2017 until late December 2019. Bruce, Dave, delighted to have you with us today. Before we turn to some specific questions about recent developments in U.S. enforcement, in particular merger control, I have a broad question to get us going. You've each been at the center of the antitrust world for over 25 years. You each served in government, Dave under President Obama, Bruce under President Bush. For the past three years, we've had something of an experiment. Progressive leaders of the two US agencies who took office with a very clear view of what they believed needed doing. As Jonathan Cantor, who heads the Department of Justice's antitrust division said, the era of lax enforcement is over. And the FTC's chair, Lena Kahn, has called for a sweeping reassessment of competition law.
1: So my question to you both, starting with Dave, then Bruce, is how are they doing? Well, first of all, thanks, Nick, for having me on the podcast. It's a real pleasure. In response to your question, I think the jury is out on whether this movement will have any longer-term effects or gain any traction. So far, neither agency has been successful in court persuading judges that some of their theories that they want to advance have merit. They've been losing cases for the most part, but they're determined and they're, they're strongly of the view that antitrust enforcement was too lax for the last 40 years. I want to say that I completely disagree with that. I was part of, a, of an enforcement effort under the Obama administration. I know Bruce can speak to his time at the FTC. And I was very proud of the enforcement record we compiled while I was there. We brought a lot of cases, we won a lot of cases, and we, we, we did our job. And the suggestion that there has been overly lax antitrust enforcement for 40 years, in my view, is incorrect. And I think time will prove that out. Thanks, Dave. So, Bruce, how are they doing?
2: So, I completely agree with Dave, which is unsurprising. Let me just make two points. One, On the point Dave just made about this notion of lax enforcement, um, it's not just kind of clearly untrue, but it's demonstrably untrue. If you look at the statistics, what you'll find is that merger enforcement and conduct enforcement, the merger enforcement particularly, increased steadily over the last 20 years, hit high watermarks in the last 10, and has actually declined in this administration by almost every measure. So that's point one. And related to that, actually, just as a couple of anecdotes on that, even if you look at conduct, the most active period of conduct enforcement in recent history at either antitrust agency, leaving aside criminal, occurred under George W. Bush when Tim Uris was the FTC chair. By far, the number of conduct cases the FTC brought in that time period hasn't even been closely matched at any time since, much less now when there are very few conduct cases by either the DOJ or the FTC. That said, point number two, while the agencies have not yet been very successful in court, except in cases that essentially pursue the kind of theories that have been well tried and established and would have been brought probably by any administration, they are also doing other things that I think could very well have significant effects. And those include things like the proposed HSR rule changes, which would have a very substantial effect on the cost involved in US merger filing and merger review, the proposed merger guidelines, and a variety of other activities which really aren't directly enforcement related, but could have substantial effects on the competition law landscape. And I think that area is an area where they've not only been active, but I don't I don't necessarily want to say they've been successful yet, but I think they're on a track where they may achieve some of the goals that they've been that they originally targeted.
0: Thanks, Bruce. Thanks, Dave. I'd like to turn to one of the cases of the year, the Microsoft Activision case. Bruce, notwithstanding the FTC's concern about big tech transactions in general and the Activision transaction in particular, Microsoft managed to close the deal, the largest tech acquisition since AOL bought Time more than 20 years ago. The FTC, as you know, tried to enjoin the transaction. They failed. So what went wrong for the FTC? And what are the implications of this deal for big tech firms eyeing deals of their own? And how do you think this transaction informs strategy in dealing with multiple regulators in a live deal review?
2: Well, I think the basic lesson of Microsoft Activision is vertical cases are hard. This was a vertical case. There wasn't a horizontal overlap, horizontal competitive issue. And so that put the FTC in a posture where they had to establish a substantial likelihood of any competitive harm from a transaction that involved firms that don't compete with each other. And a lot of the fundamental economics, a lot of the basic thinking about vertical mergers is they tend to be pro-competitive. They tend to create a lot of benefit. And so unlike a lot of the cases the agencies bring that they win, they don't walk in the door with a presumption that they can build on. So there's, they're hard cases to litigate. They turn on complicated economics, which are not particularly favorable to the agencies. And then they turn on what the facts show. And, you know, that's an area where I think to a certain extent, The FTC has struggled in litigation recently with fact development, with building a litigation record, with having the litigation posture correct. I think that's partially because they're stretched. Uh, They're litigating a lot of cases, and so it's difficult to put the resources on a case that may be necessary in order to handle it properly in terms of developing the evidence and getting the right materials in front of the judge. And I think also they had a relative lack of litigation experience at senior levels at the agency, which I think made it more difficult for them to think through how to litigate cases properly. I do think they've taken some steps to address those issues. I think Henry Liu, the new Bureau Director, Bureau of Competition, is an experienced antitrust litigator and probably brings some guidance that will be useful to them in thinking about how to cases. In terms of implications for other large technology firms, I think large, large acquisitions are all kind of sui generis. You have to think about what are the particular issues in our case. I think the fundamental point, though, would be deals can still get through and you just have to figure out what are the facts, what are the economics, what's the pro-competitive story of the deal, how do we address potential issues, just as you would in any other circumstance. I would also say in this transaction, the multi-jurisdictional issue loomed quite large. If We've seen in recent years that, and this is not particularly new, but the, there's been more of this, particularly as the CMA has become more active, that the agency that is most likely to block a deal is the one that often drives everything. And particularly so outside of the U.S., where the litigation process is a little bit different and your deal can be stopped or blocked or slowed down uh, in a situation where you're a little more on your back foot as opposed to dealing with the U.S. agencies where they have to go to court and bear the burden of proof. In this particular case, Microsoft was able to, you know, effectively land all the planes at the same time. I've always found that an odd analogy because generally you don't want to land the planes at the same time, especially if you only have one runway, but there you go. But they they were able to manage to clear the process across the world, and that's obviously a critical thing when you have a, a transaction that has touch points at regulators all over the
0: world. Thanks, Bruce. Turning to you, Dave, do you have
1: anything to add to Bruce's commentary? The only thing I'll add, and it expands on Bruce's point about the multi jurisdictional aspect of the case, is that the FTC brought that case in their administrative system long before they went to a federal judge. And they need to go to a federal judge to get an injunction to stop the transaction. And that delay was uh, harmful to them when they appeared in front of the judge. They didn't get any additional time. The judge was well aware of the Outside date under the party's agreement, which has since been extended. And then, of course, the deal ultimately closed. But when the agency delays like that before going in front of a federal judge, I really think they hurt themselves. Uh, They had every opportunity to get that case filed in federal court uh, months before they filed it. And then they uh, went to the judge and basically begged for more time, but they didn't get that because it was their own delay that put them in that position. And I think that's a common. Practice with the agencies now. When you've got deals getting held up in Europe, the U.S. agency will try to delay as long as possible, uh, hoping that the deal gets blocked in Europe. But then uh, panicking a little bit and running into federal court if it starts to look like the European authorities might clear it. I'm not sure the deal would have the case would have come out any differently, even if it had been filed earlier. But I, I do think that's that's a problem for the agencies when they they wait too long to bring the case.
0: So, Dave, that's interesting. Bruce said they maybe weren't quite prepared when they did file. Bruce, do you think they got it right in terms of timing?
2: The timing issue of filing raises a legal question that's actually kind of difficult. I mean, there is the strategic question that Dave pointed out, which is are you really just waiting for somebody else to do your work for you? Or are you trying to avoid litigating in front of the federal court, hoping that the CMA or DG Comp or somebody else blocks your transaction? And that's something that can be perceived badly by a federal judge. On the other hand, The FTC Act limits the FTC's filing in federal court in cases like this to situations where there is effectively a need for emergency intervention by a federal judge. And if you look at some prior cases, for example, in the Tronox litigation, um, this issue came up because a similar fact pattern occurred, and the federal judge said that it was quite possible that he would not have had jurisdiction to proceed had the FTC brought the case earlier when the parties couldn't close, that there wouldn't have been a sufficient factual foundation for temporary or or temporary injunctive relief or even a preliminary injunction because there would have been no need for federal court intervention until the parties were actually able to close. And the original design of the FTC Act actually contemplated that the FTC was supposed to litigate these cases in administrative court and only go to federal court when it was an emergency, when it was necessary to do so. The practice that has evolved since the hsr act has been that the FTC typically goes to federal court because they're trying to stop a deal from closing in advance but there is a kind of complicated legal question underlying all this about whether that's actually what they're supposed to do
1: the only thing i would add then is even if you don't think they waited too long to file they should have been better prepared if if bruce believes they were unprepared they had well over a year, if I remember correctly, to investigate the transaction, collect evidence using their merger investigation process, and to come into court and be unprepared after all that time is really inexcusable in my view. Now, maybe the merits of the case were such that they couldn't have won anyway. That's that's a different question. I'm not trying to address that. I just, I've been through enough of these, Nick, that I've seen time and again, the agency conducts a very lengthy very expensive investigation. Then they get to federal court, and then they tell the judge they need a ton of additional time to take depositions, often of the same people who they already deposed, and ask for more documents, often the same categories of documents they already collected. And it's 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 a real burden, and, and it's duplicative effort. And I just don't think judges are going to give them uh, the time that they want if they don't do their homework ahead of time. That's, I guess that's my point. Well, thank you, Bruce. Dave, let's move on from Microsoft Activision. So one
0: of the other changes we've seen in the last few years has been a no settlement policy for merger litigation, at least on the part of the FTC. You managed to settle the DOJ's attempt to enjoin Asa Abloy's acquisition of Spectrum Brands, HHI division, halfway through trial. How were you successful? And do you think the agencies will continue to attempt to avoid settlement even after this case?
1: Well, let me make a couple of points in response to that that good question, Nick. First of all, I think the policy of not settling is a bad policy. Settlements are an integral part of every area of enforcement I can think of. In criminal enforcement, you have plea deals that resolve most cases. In civil litigation, the great majority of cases are settled by mutually agreeable settlements in other enforcement areas, whether it's securities enforcement or other federal enforcement areas, companies, and the government reach settlements all the time. They are a good thing. They preserve resources. They resolve matters on bases that are within the control of the parties. And in my entire career, I've never heard of a a senior enforcement official take such a hostile view toward settlements. In Sabloy, first of all, I want to congratulate the career staff at the agency for being so professional about it. They approached the settlement there thoughtfully. They obtained some additional concessions and they did their job. And the front office as well, I thought, was very professional about it. And And we ended up settling that case, which was, as you said, an exception. I think what happened there was we got halfway through trial and the government realized they were very unlikely to win the case. And they were very unlikely, maybe 100 percent unlikely, to to get the kind of legal rulings that they were trying to obtain in that case, which would have imposed uh, an inordinate burden on the defendants to prove that a divestiture uh, perfectly replicated re-merger competition conditions. And and the courts are not going to put that burden, that kind of burden on defendants. The DOJ wants that burden to be placed on defendants. In my view, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen at the district court level, at the court of appeals, or if they ever get one of these to the Supreme Court, it's not going to happen there. So I think it's a, a bad policy. I think in that case, uh, the case was not going well for the DOJ and they did the right thing. And I congratulate them for that. And it was It was a good professional experience to deal with the people who who handled that matter at the end. I don't think the case should have been brought in the first place. To be clear, they should have settled it before litigation. And if they keep refusing to settle when you have a clear divestiture that solves the problem in the issue in the case, then they're going to keep losing these cases, in my view.
0: So, Dave, one of the other interesting aspects of the Asa Abloy case as I understand it, was that the government attempted to upend the Baker Hughes framework, which, as you know, guides US courts in merger litigation. They argued that the competitive impact of proposed divestitures shouldn't be considered as part of the government's prima facie case. And I guess that allows it to establish a presumption of anti-competitiveness with market share figures that don't reflect the reality, taking account of a planned divestiture. But you managed to convince the court otherwise? Do you think that this represents the end of the agency's attempt to change the Baker-Hughes framework? And do you think the agencies will attempt to inspire some kind of change in the law as an alternative?
1: I think, well, first of all, for for the folks listening to this, the Baker-Hughes framework involves a three-step analysis. In step one, the government can establish a presumption of illegality by showing that the market shares are at a certain level or the concentration is, is at a certain level and that the transaction increases that by a certain amount. In step two, the defendants can rebut that presumption. In other words, neutralize the presumption by coming forward with evidence that the market shares and the concentration levels do not accurately reflect future competitive conditions. And that can be through a number of means. Sometimes the argument is that there will be entry. Sometimes the argument is that one of the parties is failing. There are a variety of things you can do to rebut the presumption. One way to rebut the presumption is to show that you're divesting uh, assets or businesses, and therefore the pre-merger market shares are completely irrelevant because one of the businesses is being sold to a third party. They're never going to be brought together. Uh, in fi- in stage three, the government then has the burden of proving that there is a substantial lessening of competition that's going to occur. So, so defendants argue that divestiture is is an appropriate rebuttal, or even that it should be considered in stage one, because you're not even bringing the market shares together. What the government argued there was forget about the divestitures, pretend that they don't exist, and we'll deal with it at the end of the case. It's like a remedy issue. The defendants have to come in and prove that it's a perfect remedy compared to stopping the transaction, for example. That's what I think the DOJ realized they were not going to prevail on. That law is pretty clearly established in D.C. The Baker Hughes case from 1990 is a D.C. Court of Appeals, federal circuit, uh, federal D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals decision. And it's controlling law. It had two future Supreme Court justices on it. Justice Thomas and Justice Ginsburg were on that three-judge panel of the D.C. Circuit. And it's very authoritative. And District courts follow it, obviously, in DC. I think what you're going to see the DOJ do now is give up on changing that paradigm in DC, and you're going to see them file cases in other courts to try to to get a different outcome in a different circuit, and then hope that they can create a circuit split, go up to the Supreme Court, or maybe start bringing cases in a different circuit. So that's what I think you're going to see them try to do in the next year or two.
0: Bruce, what's your reaction? Do you have a different view or a similar one?
2: No, I completely agree.
0: So, Bruce, let me turn to you now with a slightly different question, still in the area of merger enforcement. As I mentioned at the beginning, you served as director of the FTC's Bureau of Competition. And in that capacity, you saw antitrust litigation for several years. Now, thinking back to your time at the FTC and looking at the cases that the FTC has lost over the last few years, how would you have approached those cases differently?
2: So I think there are a couple of things to consider here. I should say I don't have, obviously, visibility into what's going on internally at the FTC in terms of how they're preparing. But I think if you think about what I said earlier and what Dave said in terms of being prepared factually, um, not going in and needing tons of additional information, for example, in a merger case where you've had a whole second request process but already being ready to litigate, I think those point to a larger issue, which I see playing out in cases like Meta Within and some of these other cases that both agencies have brought, but then particularly thinking about the FTC cases, and I'm kind of more familiar with the internal process there. And what that is, is I think there's been insufficient, looks to me like there's been insufficient self-critical analysis inside the agency about the facts in particular. On the legal theory side, the agencies want to push aggressive legal theories or take theories that go back to the 1920s and 30s and 40s and try to run those theories. And that's fine. I mean, that's the prerogative of the current administration to try to push these aggressive legal theories. But I think that if you're going to do that, you need to be very thorough and careful in your review of the facts. And that does not mean does not mean investigating to build a case. What it means is investigating to determine what is actually true. As part of that, when you're getting ready to do your investigation, then when you're doing your investigation, and you're working on your recommendation, and you're putting together your litigation case, you need to be thinking not not about confirmation of your views, but about challenging your own views. So when you ask witnesses questions in depositions, for example, or investigational hearings, as they call it, the FTC, you need to be thinking about, well, what actually would the other side ask? What is the flip side of this question. What does this document really say? Not can I get a soundbite that supports a case, which I can then put in my memo and cite cite a complaint. I need to know what's going to happen when the other side comes and asks the next question that I didn't ask. And I think that's been lacking. And I think it's partially lacking because, you know, for example, at the FTC, there have been no Republican commissioners. You just have three Democratic commissioners you didn't have a lot of litigation experience in the management, so you didn't have that kind of red teaming, pushback, aggressive cross-examination of your own cases going on internally. Now, I don't know that for sure. That's just my suspicion, and I think it's consistent with what we've seen in the facts where there's been a lot of surprise. And I think it's true of DOJ as well when they brought cases, and then they get surprised what actually turns out to be the case where they get the factual record when the other side finally has a chance to start putting facts in. When I've been there in the past, both times as it was at the FTC in the early 2000s and then the late 2010s, one of the things that we were very cognizant of was rigorously cross-examining our own cases. And I think partially as a result of that, the FTC's historical litigation track record is extremely good. The FTC wins most of its cases, but it wins those cases because it knows pretty well what the warts on them are when it goes into court. And sometimes, when you know what those warts are, you don't bring the case because the case just isn't factually good. And even if you want to pursue an aggressive new legal theory, you want to have facts to support that.
0: And turning to you, Dave, you fought a lot of cases at the Department of Justice. What's your take on why the FTC has been getting things wrong in the last few years? And what
1: might you have done differently? I certainly agree with Bruce. And I think that the same thing applies at the DOJ. When I was there, we spent a lot of time asking ourselves what the problems with the case are. We were willing to close investigations, even in high-profile transactions, if we weren't able to develop the evidence. I always thought that as a as a government uh, official, when, you, when you're when you thinking about bringing a case and recognizing that the burden of proof is on the government, that you have to con- be convinced of both the fact that the, the deal is going to hurt consumers and be anti-competitive and that you have a provable case. It doesn't do you any good to bring a case that's not provable and that you're gonna end up losing. And in fact, it does a lot of harm because you create bad law and you spend a lot of money. These cases are very expensive to litigate. You divert resources from other enforcement efforts and you can't do everything. So you have to triage and decide where the enforcement efforts are best applied. When I was there, we used to really cross examine ourselves before we would file a case, even taking our economists sometimes and running them through mock testimony to make sure they could support the allegations of the complaint and really questioning ourselves before a case was filed. So being thoughtful about it, asking not just whether the, the transaction is harmful, but also whether it's provable. And then, of course, I don't begrudge the current administration. Uh, their efforts to push the law. I think that's a perfectly appropriate thing for uh, senior officials to do, but you have to really be thoughtful and careful about the cases you select. And honestly, their case selection so far has not been very impressive.
0: Thank you both. We've now had a few years to adapt to the new leadership in the FTC and the DOJ. What advice are you giving companies about the best way to get their transactions approved, in particular in cases where you can anticipate fixes may be required, but the agencies may not want to agree consent decrees?
2: Sure. So one one quick point on consent decrees. The FTC has very pointedly not echoed the DOJ's policy on consent decrees and has been willing to enter to consent decrees much more readily than DOJ. So I think when you're looking at transactions and you think you have a deal that's likely to go to the FUC, I think the consent decree door is still open. Now, that's not to say they're not difficult, challenging, skeptical, and need to be persuaded, but I think you can certainly follow the approach, the more standard playbook of thinking about resolutions that could be achievable. That said, I think one of the primary issues that i've seen with this administration both the doj and the ftc is higher uncertainty um some deals that we thought might have had questions in the past go through with little inquiry some that don't seem to have any apparent antitrust concern get a lot of inquiry there's a high degree of randomness and then of course you do have to think about on the back end not only be at doj where they won't want to consent but at either agency you might suddenly find yourself defending a theory that no one's thought about since 1937 and so you'll You know, you may be in a litigation posture unexpectedly, potentially, because of that. So one of the things we're trying to do is think about what can we do to fix transactions first, you know, fix it first type situations? Where can we line up remedies ahead of time? What can we do to be prepared to litigate? Because we think you have to have more readiness to litigate than might have been the case in the past because you just can't be sure about whether some theory is going to arise that you couldn't have really anticipated or couldn't address terribly well in discussions, And then as a result of that, when you think about merger agreements, you have to think about adding in extra time on the back end, abilities to extend, covenants that address the circumstance that you might get an unexpected outcome from from either agency. And I think I would say also that we've seen in the second request process, the agencies have been less willing to be reasonably tailored in what they ask for. So there's been more demands for more information, often in ways that's frankly not particularly germane to any issue but it's quite burdensome. So you have to think about the prospect of a second request process that will seek more documents and more data from more custodians and take more time and have more cost. And so you have to build that into your transaction planning.
0: Thanks, Bruce. Turning to you, Dave, what advice
1: are you giving companies to maximize their chances of success? Uh, Well, first of all, I advise them to listen to everything that Bruce just said, because it's all absolutely correct uh you know i'm violating my own rule i've always said when you're on a panel don't ever agree with somebody else nobody cares just make new points anyway uh first of all the great majority of transactions get done they just do and you can't overreact to this you can't start finding ghosts in every transaction and telling clients you know that everything is high risk you need to be thoughtful about it i think i think you do have to identify the risks when a case has features that line up in a way that that leads you to believe the agency is going to be interested in investigating in depth and then maybe ultimately challenging and as Bruce said you need to be ready for or you need to be thinking about litigation from the very beginning timelines are longer now more second requests more in-depth investigations more burden when you have the second request all of that has to be factored in that That advice has drifted from, say, five years ago. Uh, And another thing I want to say is even though the agency has a poor record of winning these cases, clients need to understand they they can win cases. You know, there are transactions that are probably going to be viewed by courts as violating the law if you don't have the right evidence and the right facts to support your defense. So you need to make sure clients understand that just paying lawyers to spend a lot of time and get ready for litigation doesn't necessarily mean you're going to win every case. It it all depends on the facts of the case and how good your witnesses are, what your documents say, what the data shows, all of the usual stuff. And that analysis for me, remains largely the same as it always was with a little bit of a filter that you need to be thinking about some of these more creative theories. I have to say, I don't, the fact that the DOJ or the FTC says something is a violation, that has become almost meaningless to me now. They don't really have a lot of authority because they, they are pushing too far. And So clients need to be aware of it. They need to be aware that they're doing a transaction that the agencies themselves have said are in their target range. But when I'm looking at a transaction early on, I am thinking about how does this look in front of a judge? And by the end of the investigation, the conversation with the agency is, even if you think this is an undesirable transaction from your policy perspective, you're going to lose this case and you shouldn't bring it. You shouldn't waste the resources. Thanks, Dave. That's an interesting
0: observation. I'd like to turn to the agency's proposed changes. As you know, this year, they proposed sweeping changes to the merger guidelines, including lower thresholds for a structural presumption of illegality, a new focus on labor markets and so-called dominant firms, and increased scrutiny of private equity sponsors and institutional investors. How should companies think about these new guidelines?
1: Well, first of all, I kind of applaud the current administration for being honest in their guidelines. This is how they think. These are their enforcement guidelines. My own view is they will have little to no impact on the courts because it truly is just a policy document. It's not based on, in my view, it's not based on a thoughtful analysis of where modern economics has come in terms of thinking about competitive effects. It's not based on a, on a fair analysis of legal developments over the last 40 years. Most of the cases that are cited in that draft document are very old cases that have, um, have become less meaningful in light of modern thinking and, and the evolution of the case law. So I think they're not long for this world, even if they are adopted by the agencies after this comment period that they're going through. Uh, the courts won't adopt uh, uh, the the more novel theories that are in there. Now, some of what's in there is really not new. Uh, all of this talk about a focus on labor markets. The antitrust authorities have been thinking about labor markets for a long time. We thought about them when I was at the DOJ. Uh, if, if a deal is going to result in a substantial lessening of competition for labor—that's always been a theory that's been looked at and thought about. It's just those cases don't usually arise because you usually have a problem on the product side of that of that same business. So, for example, if you're concentrating the market for hiring nurses at hospitals, chances are you've got a problem on the on the hospital side of the market. So, there's some things in there that really aren't new and will continue to to apply in in antitrust enforcement and in the way courts look at these things. But some of the things like arbitrarily lowering the thresholds and thinking about potential competition in a new way, et cetera, my view is they're not going to impact the courts very much, if at all. Bruce,
0: I'm guessing you may have an even sharper reaction to the new merger guidelines, but rather than presuming, tell me what you think.
2: I don't know if I would say I have a sharper view. I basically agree across the board with what Dave said. I would just underscore a couple things. One, there really is a startling lack of empirical support for the proposed changes in the guidelines. In fact, that's confessed. You know, One of the points that the agencies have made is they want to go back to an era of bright line rules, presumptions that favor the government, and... Principles like that that actually don't rest on either economic theory or empirical facts and I think the concentration thresholds are a great example of that the concentration thresholds were raised in the 2010 merger guidelines because there is solid empirical evidence that the agencies were not bringing cases at lower levels of concentration and so the agencies revised the guidelines to reflect a reality. These changes are not based on any reality. There is no evidence of any sort that shows that mergers at the concentration levels discussed in the guidelines are likely to be anti-competitive or that there's some set of mergers that are being missed. It does just has no basis. So I think that kind of lack of support will undermine judicial acceptance. Second point is I don't think courts care very much when agencies tell them what the law is. My experience with judges is they say, I can read cases. I'm actually pretty good at that. That's my job need you agency to tell me things that you're expert in and reading case law is not one of those things. So I think that further underscores Dave's point that these guidelines will have difficulty getting traction. But third last point, the agencies are very engaged right now in talking to the public about these guidelines, and I think they've been receptive to some of these these comments So we'll see what actually emerges. You know, they may think a little bit more about what they're doing internally and what they're saying externally based on the feedback that they're getting. So this is another area where the jury is still a bit out.
0: So, Bruce, let me turn to another area where I know you have strong views. The proposal to overhaul the HSR form that governs, as people know, pre-merger notification in the US. The agencies seem to have in mind something more like Form CO, the European counterpart to the HSR form, which requires an awful lot of market information, market shares, and so forth. So what's your view? What's the likelihood of these rules being uh, adopted, and what do you think would be the result if they were?
2: Well, I think the proposed rules, to be blunt, are catastrophically bad, completely inconsistent with the HSR Act, going to be subject to legal challenge in a whole variety of ways and may very well not survive it if they're adopted in their present form. And I won't go into lots of detail on it because there's, there are lots and lots and lots of issues. I'll just make one fundamental point about these proposed HSR rules. 98% of transactions filed in the US, HSR reported transactions have absolutely no antitrust issues. They're just clear or they're cleared without a second request. Out of the 2% or so, it varies from 1.5 to 3, you know, so just use 2% as a median. Out of the 2% or so of transactions that get a second request, a little bit more than half ultimately get a remedy. So you end up with 1% of merger filings have antitrust concerns that actually require a remedy. And this has been true across this administration, the last administration, the one before that, the one before that. I mean, this is just an historical fact. Given that 1% of filings actually raise antitrust concerns that require some sort of remedial action, imposing enormous cost burdens, which the agencies filing grossly underestimates in ways that are easily demonstrably shown is completely unjustifiable. The U.S. system was designed purposefully to sweep in a much wider array of transactions than, for example, the filing system in Europe and, you know, in, in the European Union, filing systems in most jurisdictions. We sweep in many more. It was intended that that broad net would be relatively light because it's sweeping in many more transactions than are likely to have been. The agencies have a very broad tool, the second request, which they can issue almost at will to probe in-depth into any transaction they want to investigate. That is the right way to proceed. One final note, there is absolutely no way that the agency staff will be able to handle the filings at the level proposed, review the information, or do anything with it. They're overwhelmed now. They the filings they get today, The suspension of early termination, for example, which should have meant that 50% more transactions, double, not 50%, double the number of transactions that got review were going to get review, has resulted in no increase in second requests, no increase in investigations. That tells you that the agencies are not finding additional problems, even with broader nets. There's simply no reason for this kind of system. It would be extremely harmful, and I very much hope it doesn't get adopted.
0: Dave, you've been furiously agreeing with Bruce over this podcast. Do you agree with him on this,
1: or are you a little more sympathetic to the proposals? I think uh, Bruce should tell us how he really feels and stop beating around the bush on this. Uh, he's clearly right, hate to say it. I mean, he hasn't gotten anything wrong yet in this, in this session, but share his, um, share his passionate objection to imposing these enormous burdens on companies for no good reason.
0: Thanks, Dave. Our time is almost up. We focused on merger control, but I'd like to ask a last question on a different topic big tech. As you know, we're seeing a raft of regulatory regimes being established around the world to define and enforce guardrails intended to rein in the leading digital platforms. What do you think the prospects are for the US adopting a similar regime? And if Congress can't pass the necessary legislation, do you think the US will be content to see some of the largest US companies? regulated by non-U.S. agencies with no effective seat at the table. Let me turn first to Bruce and then to
2: Dave. So Professor Hovenkamp recently wrote that if you wanted to consider the worst industry for more aggressive antitrust intervention and particularly for more aggressive regulatory or legislative intervention, Technology is the poster child for that, that there's simply no justification for the kind of proposals that we've seen. And I completely agree with that. I think I think it's quite unlikely that we will adopt regulatory systems similar to those that you're seeing adopted in places like, well, obviously in in, in Europe, uh, at the European Union level with the gatekeeper rules, as well as in Germany and some of the other member states. I think it's quite unlikely. I think it's very difficult to get that kind of legislation passed and for good reasons. And I'd also add that I very much hope we don't. I I spoke recently on a panel at Fordham about this. We talked, for example, about the German rules. My view is the United States economy has been by far the most dynamic and innovative and successful economy in the world, including particularly in advanced technology. I think that the regulatory regimes that are being launched in Europe are gonna be profoundly harmful to innovation. I could be wrong, but I would like to serve as the control set in this experiment and let Europe experiment with aggressive regulation of innovation. And my prediction is that it will further suppress innovation in Europe and push it in the U.S. But I might be wrong, but I'd rather be the control set in this experiment.
0: Dave, last word to you. Are you any more sympathetic to regulation or any more optimistic or pessimistic, depending on where you sit, that it will be introduced in the U.S.?
1: Well, first of all, I don't think there's any chance Congress is going to do anything about it because they can't even pick a Speaker of the House without spending three weeks wringing their hands. And that's a very fundamental function of even running the Congress. There's so much division and dysfunction in our Congress right now that they they will not be capable of doing this, in my view. Uh, I don't think government employees are better at figuring out What technology companies should do than the entrepreneurs and the engineers and the thousands of people who put their own careers on the line every day by trying to invent things and create things and improve things. And I appreciate that there's a concern about accumulating power, market power, political power, all the other things that people worry about, especially in in markets that involve network effects and sort of natural dominant companies emerging from some of those efforts. I appreciate that, I think it's a serious concern. We have to have that debate, maybe some regulation around the edges to prevent the most abusive practices. But the idea of having a, a broad regulatory regime where tech companies are told by government employees all the time what they can and can't do is a really bad idea in my view. Thank you
0: very much, it's been a terrific podcast. Dave Gelfand, Bruce Hoffman, thank you very much for your insights. Really appreciate your time and your thoughts. Thank you too to everyone for listening. I look forward to welcoming you back to the next edition of Cleary Gottlieb's Antitrust Review.